Jack, Andrew, I got a question for you. Hit me. Mm -hmm. Could you tell a real work of art by a Dutch master from a fake? Hmm. Yeah, certainly. Really? How much money would you bet on it? 500 quid. (laughs) Andrew? Yeah, what he said, for sure. All right, all right, all right. But not $30 million. I'm not crazy, Eric. Big time whoopsies. My name is Eric McAdams. This is a podcast about incompetence. Each week I tell you and a friend of mine a story from history involving massive incompetence. This week I have Andrew, a four-time returning guest. Andrew? We'll call it seven. I think it's fourth. And also Jack, who's never been on and knows nothing. First time, long time, Eric. <laughs> first first time caller, not really any time listener. <laughs> That's Jack. I already feel at home, though, because of the incompetence piece. Yeah. And also because we spent 35 minutes trying to get the friggin' video chat to work. It was actually a great icebreaker, though, if we're being honest. Yeah, it was about as good as we can expect on this podcast. And so, Andrew, you you didn't come up with a lot when I asked you for a prompt this time, some kind of... Cause, cause there was the time where you just said I should do a bunch of pirates. Uh, there's a time where yeah, you were like anything I, goes. There was definitely there was definitely a time period in my life in which pirates sounded like a great choice. Yeah, and I I don't regret it, but I think the stakes may have been too high. <laughs> this time you said mummies, and I I don't have any mummies for you in this, <laughs> in this story. I did not succeed in that regard. Instead, I just. I, I brought up this older story that I've been, that I've been working on for a while and actually tried to do with some other guests, but they had heard of the main guy, so I couldn't do it with them. So we were chosen for our ignorance. Is, yes, is that that's what, what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I want you to come away from this thinking. For our incompetence. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to learn about a guy named Han von Megeren today. Can't wait. Yeah. You want to get started? Mm-hmm. Jack, you want to get started? More than anything in the world, Eric. all right 1933 germany adolf hitler becomes chancellor and immediately begins reshaping the country to his will one of his first courses of action was to influence the culture of germany and this meant basically raising the german art world to the ground yeah you didn't expect this one huh did you didn't expect that beginning that was a that was a cold open yeah (laughs) All modern art, especially Dadaism, Cubism, and Futurism, was termed degenerate art, alongside jazz music and movies and plays that spoke ill of the state or displayed any other non-Nazi ideals. It was censored and destroyed. You know what I call degenerate art? SoundCloud rappers. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I call degenerate art? That that guy Michael Bay, that bozo. Can't make a good movie to save his life. 
Bumblebee, Bumblebee. That's not him. He's a picture nominee. That's, that's not him. That's not Michael Bay. I guess he's a producer. I mean, he's like he's definitely involved, right? He was the first Transformers guy. Yeah, but he didn't direct Bumblebee. If you could make a movie of my life, I might name it Degenerate Art. Nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's what we all aspire to, really. In modern art's place, Nazis intended to use art based on classical forms, especially influenced by ancient Greek and Roman art, to spread cultural propaganda. The forms of art that were celebrated by the Nazis were thus exclusively those that venerated and imitated the old masters, which included several European nations, including the Dutch old masters. You know, as you as you might expect. <laughs> In addition to... Like, all old masters are Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Michelangelo might seem Italian, but eh, he seems kind of Dutch to me. He's a little Dutch, though. Yeah, well, Just like an he's eighth. a little Dutch. <laughs> In addition to the standard Nazi plundering of various cultures, which basically consisted of any of all the soldiers grabbing as many pieces of art that fit the description as their grubby little pig hoofs could get, there were also high-ranking Nazi officials who used this opportunity to enrich their personal art collections. Woof. One of these horrendous little shitbags was Hermann Goering. Who would, have, who would have his personal art dealer look through the confiscated art and pick out good ones for him before they were sent back to Germany. I, uh, I dated a Herman once. Oh, a Goering? A Herman. No, he was not Herman Goering. It was a different Herman. Okay, cool. Yeah. I also dated a hermit. <laughs> I dated a hermit crab. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could date a hermit crab. <laughs> Goering would also pressure art dealers in the foreign countries into giving him works of art by the old masters for nominal fees. That would allow him to kind of keep the veneer of respectability. Like, you know, technically it's legal because, you know, I did pay for this, but usually did not pay a very exorbitant price for it. Sneaky bastard. Through these methods, he amassed a personal collection of thousands of pieces. In 1943, he hid much of that collection in an Austrian salt mine, where it remains As until... one does. Yeah, you know, just a, just a normal thing for a guy to do. Huh, well my garage is pretty full, and I want to be able to pull the car all the way in, yeah. so I guess I'll put it in a salt mine. I just got, you know, these thousands of priceless artworks. I got this salt mine. That's, that seems like a good spot. It belongs in a museum. Yeah, so... In 1943, he hid a bunch of that collection in an Austrian salt mine where it remained until it was discovered by Allied forces in 1945. Damn, those guys must have been thrilled. Yeah, they were like, look at all this freaking salt. And then they found some <laughs> other really great stuff. <laughs> yeah, first, they were already jazzed about they were the salt. Super they were like, about look, the, salt. the salt's here, we're here for it. We yeah, we it. were here for the salt, you know. Then you toss in some precious art. I assume this is what the movie The Monuments Men was about. The George Clooney one. No one ever watched it. Yeah, no one in the world. I've never heard of that movie. Oh, well, he thought it was, was going to be an Oscar contender, and it, it sounds, wasn't. Sounds like it'd be a good sequel to one of the National Treasures. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely trying to recapture that, but like real history, which is supposed to make it better, but never does. Like, like, like Nicolas Cage is oh, yeah. some sort of like police detective in a group that is put together just to save monuments yeah just screaming his face off in a mind full of salt (laughs) just in the just in the washington monument just getting really amped (laughs) 
among the collection that was found by the Allied forces was a painting by Johan Vermeer, a now legendary Dutch master, especially notable because of how rare his paintings are. Have y'all heard of him? Um, no. I wish Good I had. Lord. All right, all right. <laughs> you uncultured swine. Yeah, Vermeer's a big deal. He's one of the he's one of like the most famous Dutch masters. He is especially renowned for his use of color and light in his paintings. Um, he has. I agree, Eric. <laughs> Eric, I can't Thank see you. you. I, can't, I can't see you up there on your high horse. Can you come down a little bit? I do agree. Look, man. Ari, the color and light point. <laughs> Y'all are talking big right now, but the, the, he's a big deal, actually. <laughs> Well, that's a little inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's he only has, I believe, thirty four or thirty five confirmed paintings. That like that's it from his from his entire life. He painted in the seventeenth century. He is considered like one of the greatest Dutch painters ever. He's up there with Rembrandt. Thirty four or thirty five? Yeah, that's way, it. I've got way more than that. Yeah, I could I could paint more than that in a day. He took a long time with each work. That's why it was so meticulous and really good. So his, so some critics say. He showed his work. <laughs> I hate when they show their work. He showed his big deal. This painting that was found in Goering's collection was called Christ with the Adulteress and was hitherto unknown in 1945. It had never, it was, it was not a confirmed Vermeer. People did not know about it. It was... This wasn't this wasn't um, particularly unexpected. There had been like a series of paintings by Vermeer discovered in the 1860s and a few scattered after that. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that in 1945 there there was there right. there was like some undiscovered Vermeer lurking out there. The Allies began tracing the sale of that painting back to its original owner or whatever collaborator had sold it to Goering. Um, and they turned up a man named Han von Megeren. Where do they find these guys? Well, the Netherlands. <laughs> In this case. Because they all seem to have the same name. <laughs> von Megeren was thus immediately brought up on charges as this was a grave legal issue. Selling an unknown Vermeer meant that he was selling a national treasure which was treason, which would be punished with death. Damn, dude, death sucks. Yeah, I've heard bad things about it. Yeah. Pretty I bad saw the, I saw the first one and was like, eh, just don't make a second, and they made mm. a second one. Yeah. <laughs> death 2, the real death. Death 2, this time it's personal. Death seemed to work out pretty good for Biggie Small, so. Nah, <laughs> yeah, he made a lot of money. Yeah. He was ready well, to die, dead. and then he lived after dying, you know. Yeah, so they had they had traced it to von Megeren, who had who had sold the piece through another art dealer, um, and von Megeren was quietly held in jail, awaiting his trial for a few weeks, apparently, and he kind of watched his fate grow more and more foreboding. Like he was <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like kind of watched it go. Like, oh no, they're talking about like killing me. <laughs> this isn't going the way I thought it would. <laughs> this is. Not some, like, little thing. Record scratch. You're probably so wondering finally, how I got here. <laughs> after apparently weeks, and I'm not sure I'm not sure how true this is, but apparently after weeks of waiting through this, he had an outburst where he told the Dutch authorities two things. First, Goering's Vermeer was a fake. And second, 
Von Megerin painted it. That's how he knew. I did not see that coming. This admission, which had taken him weeks to say, was not believed by any of the authorities. (laughs) Oh yeah, prove it. That is literally what they suggested. One of them, like, half-jokingly, one of the guards said, half-jokingly suggested that Von Megerin prove it by copying some Vermeer in front of everybody. Oh, if you like Vermeer so much, why don't you tell me three of their albums? Yeah, basically. And Von Megerin said no... Because that would have been too easy. That's a classic high school teacher test. Jack, you cheated. Do the test in front of me. No, I didn't (laughs) cheat. I've heard this story before. He said that he would not copy it because that would be too easy. Instead, he would create a wholly original work, just like Christ and the Adulteress, that looked like a Vermeer. He said that copying wasn't really art. He didn't want to just copy someone else's painting and pass it off as a forgery. He wanted to paint a completely original thing that would then pass as an undiscovered Vermeer. Oh, confident. Yeah. Sneaky mommy. Mm. And he and he literally said, I will create a masterpiece for you. <laughs> so they agreed to this, not believing a word of it. Like, <laughs> like okay, guy. <laughs> Paint of Vermeer, then. Sure, brother. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) So he set to work, taking over a month to create a painting called Jesus Among the Doctors. Von Megerin made his own badger hair brushes. He painted on 17th century canvas. He used a hardening resin called Bakelite in the paint to make it it brittle, uh, to give it the, the brittle aged quality of the 17th century. That was one of the tests they would do is to make sure that the oil paints had completely hardened, so he used a resin to make it harden faster. Why Why all Why all this work? I'll tell you later. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. Finally, he rolled the painting up to crack it and baked it to a, to a higher temperature to, make, to, to artificially age it, and then painted in the cracks with ink. The final product looked extremely similar to Christ and the Adulteress. Upset of the century. He's done this before. Through the whole process, he was supplied with alcohol and morphine because he said he needed them to work. More on that later. Oh, God. My job would be so much better if I could demand <laughs> drugs at my desk. <laughs> the investigators, upon seeing Jesus among the doctors, had to conclude that he was indeed the painter of Christ with the Adulteress. And he had proven himself guilty of fraud, but innocent of selling a national treasure. During the same investigation, Von Megeren also became a folk hero in the Netherlands because he played to the crowd during the trial and information came through that his dealer, whose name was Alois Miedel, which I have no idea how to correctly pronounce, had in fact sold the Vermeer to Goering in exchange for 137 other paintings. Which meant that they had given Damn, up dude, a fake that's a crazy to get salary over 100 back. I don't know if they have that many roster spots. 137 for one? Yeah. Goering really wanted a Vermeer. He thought it would be the jewel of his collection. Well, it's the only thing in his collection after he trades it for 137 <laughs> No, he's still, he's still at thousands. It's <laughs> a lot of paintings to deal with. I would rather just have cash. <laughs> 
They didn't even have, like, trucks in those Sorry, days. he did also pay with a bit of cash. There was also an undisclosed amount of money. So, sounds like a pretty good time of life to, you know, be living in. <laughs> Fake and paintings. Sure. Europe in them. World War II. The best time. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I don't know about that, brother, but... This ain't it. The 1940s? As good as the 20s. That's what everyone Uh, says. Hot take, alright. That's what everyone says. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, this information was... When when common people heard it, they were like, Yeah, fuck yeah, that guy... That guy gave up nothing in exchange for actually getting a bunch of our paintings back from the Nazis. This guy's great. (laughs) They were stoked. Yeah, when, I mean, in reality, it was the other art dealer who had actually negotiated that, and Megrin had just sold it to that dealer, but, you know, whatever. So why can't people just accept that this guy's also really good? He made a whole new complete work of art. Let's just be like, oh, all right, he's the new, you know, yeah, I actually von Schmiegen. Like, I, he's, I the totally new, he's the new Sh- Well, it's, 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 I'll get into this more later. Um, but this was also the 1940s, like the, during, in the midst of the modern art movement where like a million other things were happening in the art world and imitating the old masters was not seen as anything particularly special. Mm-hmm. So to give the prosecutors an even bigger headache, this was only the start because Von Megren claimed that he had been making an extremely lucrative living as a forger with at least a dozen forgeries sitting in museums and private collections around the country. Uh, Done in the styles of several different great masters. So he's like a he's like a walking greatest hits. Yeah. He's just like, oh, Rembrandt? Done. I mean, there there are still guys today who like paint in the styles or like just straight up copy works of art. Um, like, you know, if you if you want a Monet, but obviously you're not going to actually get a Monet or just a print. You want like an actual painting. You can get a guy to like imitate it. Um, but you have to sign your own name when you do that. <laughs> can't, can't do the other thing. Ugh. Can't sign Vermeer. So we'll learn more about Han von Megren's life after we break for an ad for another show on the major cast network. If that's all right with y'all. Jack, they cool with you? Uh, am I doing the ad or are you doing the ad? We're here with BetDSI.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just quickly tell me about your Casper mattress real fast. Hello, listener. Do you like a scare, a jump, a fright? How about Maine? How do you feel about Maine? If any of those words made your heart skip a beat, then I've got a podcast for you. King Me is a monthly Stephen King podcast where I, Tom Lockney, and a guest watch through a theatrical adaption of a work by everyone's favorite Northeastern author and talk about it with a little help from the source material. So, if you're feeling particularly brave, join me on my descent into terror on the Major Casts Network or wherever you find podcasts. So before we took a break, I was I, I said we'd get into Han von Megren and his life. You ready for that? And here we are. Yes. Ready to get into it. Yeah, what a journey we've been on together. 
Henricus Antonius von Megeren was born in 1889 in Deventer. Yes, that's his full name. We'll not be referring to him as it anymore. He's just Han. For the fans back home, you want to read that one out again? Henricus Antonicus. Sorry, Henricus Antonius von Megeren. That's a longest name, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I got that. He had an overbearing, by some, count, by some accounts, abusive father that tried to force him to become an architect, which Han followed until he gave it up to join an art school. Damn. He's throwing it all away. He's following his dreams. His incredible path. <laughs> uh, at the Higher School, he met a mentor who steered him away from all the modern chic styles of the day that most critics seem to like instead schooling him to paint in the style of the Dutch masters. Han had a girlfriend that he knocked up and then married in 1911, Damn. and he had a modest teaching position that didn't give him enough money to put up his family in the style he desired. He sold drawings to tourists and eventually became a popular portraitist. He would travel around Europe to both paint these commissions and be very unfaithful to his wife. <laughs> she filed for divorce in the early 1920s, and then he remarried in 1928. Damn, they must have really hated each other. People did not get divorced prior to, like, 1980. Sounds yeah. like a pig, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, his infidelity was an issue across all his relationships and continued throughout his life. He was never a good husband. So- sounds like a really nice guy. Yeah, yeah. well, more on that later. By this time, he was established in the Dutch art world, but not particularly respected. Critics thought he was a good technical painter, but that he was unoriginal because basically he was just an imitator of the styles of the masters. I think I can name a few people like that. Is master the correct term still? Do we yeah, have- the... The Dutch masters are, are the, the the Dutch golden age of portraiture or whatever you want so, to call so it. So it refers to an age. Like, could I? Yeah. Could I one day become an American master? I guess, but you'd probably only be called that after you were dead. Mm, we can make that happen. Also, you'll never be a master. <laughs> also, it won't. American masters got a good little ring to it, though. Yeah, that's true. It reminds me of Master Chef Junior. Reminds me of American Ninja. <laughs> I'd actually prefer to be a ninja. I take that back. I'd rather be a ninja. All right, okay. <laughs> so, Von Megeren took great offense to the critics' uh, descriptions of his work. Um, apparently authoring a series of tirades in a local paper to defend himself. Reasonable. Yeah, like you, like you did in this time period, apparently. He posted something mean on my Facebook wall. I better go to the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, basic, basically what he was doing was tweeting through it. That's what he was doing. <laughs> Dude, what would you do? Running around and... town, dropping notes under people's doors? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like 1920s, you gotta get the word out. The 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 periodical that he authored these in was called uh, The Gamecock. That's what it was. Trans- that's what it would translate to. It was in Dutch, but you, you get the point. Well, he was very feisty, as is the game cop. Yeah. After authoring all these, he decided to prove all his critics wrong, and so he holed himself up in a mansion in the south of France to create a masterpiece that would rival the ancients. How'd it go? To train himself, von Megeren created forged a series of paintings by Dutch masters including Vermeer, Pieter de Hooch, Gerard de Borch, and Franz Hals. 
He began to study their techniques and biographies, learning the series of tricks that would eventually set him apart as a forger, the ones I told you about earlier. He did this for years. Years he basically stayed there. Just oh, just getting better at forging paintings. Reasonable. <laughs> Makes Jack sense. Is, Jack just wants to be a master. <laughs> He mixed his own paints using pigments Vermeer would have used, made his own brushes out of the same materials, artificially aged the canvas by baking it and then rolling it, and finally, in 1937, he created his masterwork, The Supper at Emmaus, and he got esteemed art critic Abraham Bredius to see it. Abraham Bredius was a Rembrandt connoisseur specifically, but he was very well versed in the Dutch masters, so so much so that in the scene he was referred to as the Pope. Abraham Medius is that Bredius. Bredius, yeah. Damn, that is that's a name. Uh, yeah, I know, everyone right? in this really, everyone, everyone you've named has. A... Also, you mentioned earlier a Mister Hooch. Yes, Pieter de Hooch. Yeah, particularly fond of that name. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of them are also pretty silly. <laughs> there's I... lo- there's a there's also Gerard Terborch. Terborch. Yeah, Terborch. Being a Dutch master is cool and all, but but Mr. Hooch should have been a doctor. Yeah, I mean, but who doesn't want to go to Doctor Hooch? <laughs> being a being a master sounds pretty good, but I think I'd prefer to be born Italian for the name. <laughs> master Hooch is pretty good too. How about Captain Hooch? I might need a full He's list. A military of all these man. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, do you guys want to hear what Abraham Bredius said upon seeing this forged work reported to be an undiscovered Vermeer? Aye, aye, Captain Hooch. Let me find, in my, like, <laughs> sea of tabs, let me find the quote. <laughs> navigating the sea of tabs, Captain Hooch will find the answer. I have, I have a million tabs open. They're all research-based. So, I am taking a firm stance on the fact that if you have more than, like, six or seven tabs open, you have a problem. I agree with that. I all, but like, I go over that for podcast stuff because I have like a bunch of research stuff for recording stuff. Yeah. All right. So yeah, here's yeah, what yeah. here's what the great critic said about this fake. Mm-hmm. It is a wonderful moment in the life of a lover of art when he finds himself suddenly confronted with a hitherto unknown painting by a great master, untouched on the original canvas, and without any restoration, just as it left the painter's studio. And what a picture! Neither the beautiful signature, nor the pointillez on the bread which Christ is blessing, is necessary to convince us that what we have here, that we have here, I am inclined to say, the masterpiece of Johann Vermeer of Delft. Damn, dude, damn. Get a room, brother. Quite different from all his other paintings, and yet every inch of Vermeer. In no other picture by the great master of Delft do we find such sentiment, such a profound understanding of the Bible story, a sentiment so nobly human expressed through the medium of highest art. I really hope he was, like, hiding in the bushes while this was being written. He was like... I'm so smart. Can you imagine how satisfying that would be to see having forged that work of art? That would feel so good. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine being the critic and then having to read that again? (laughs) I'm I'm the biggest dingus in the, you know, the the late 18th century. I'm the Pope of knowing shit about ass. 
<laughs> All right. He's on that note. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what he said. The painting was purchased by the Rembrandt Society for 520,000 oh, guilders, which idiot. would be millions of dollars today. 500,000 guilders. <laughs> It's a lot of guilders. Von Megeren continued to sell his forgeries and became a multi-millionaire who literally could not spend all the money he was making. And he because he made the equivalent of thirty million dollars in today's money. If he couldn't spend all that money, he should have called my wife. <laughs> right, Eric? Yes, right, the best Eric? comedy on Major Cast. Tune in to Major Cast. Nothing but the good jokes here. I said I said, my wife. <laughs> It's true. Andrew's wife spends a lot of my money. One of them, of course, one of these paintings, of course, ended up in the hands of Hermann Göring, which started the whole trial. And once all this came to light, von Megeren was sentenced to just one year in jail instead of death, thanks to his cooperation in, in identifying the other forged works. He had a heart attack before he went to jail. Never served time because he was dead. That's like a catch me if you can situation. Like it really live, is. Live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Damn. So that's that's the life of Han von Megeren, and I feel like a lot of contemporary works about him kind of stop here because like he's this genius forger, fooled everybody, so like tricked the Nazis out of a bunch of real paintings, showed the hypocrisy of the art world great guy right so is i was gonna say is he like a hero like how is he now it's now it's time for the more downer section of the podcast i guess it's it's more like it's more like the kicker was he a nazi hater at least did he hate the nazis well oh no no eric if i left the story here you would think that he was a hero a genius saved dutch paintings showed the hypocrisy no Von Megren did not sell any genuine Vermeer or any other national treasure to the Nazis, but he certainly was comfortable living under the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. Those defensive articles that uh, th- about the critics that I told you he wrote in the Gamecock, uh, he called those critics Negro lovers and compared the international art scene to a Jew with a handcart. While he was imprisoned, a book of, of uh, poems was found in Hitler's private library, illustrated by von Megeren with the inscription, To my beloved Fuhrer, in grateful tribute, H. von Megeren. To my baby, my favorite fur. Yeah, to my big boy. (laughs) Sweet darling, I will be home soon. Here are my paintings. So yeah. You're my number one hooch. Yeah, so that's, that's, that should speak to all you need to know about his, his character. Uh, in that this was, time. That was deflating, to say Sorry. But the best part of all of this, Han von Megeren was not a good forger. Uh, now I'm confused. <laughs> As von Megeren got richer, he became more and more of an alcoholic and a drug addict. He needed both... Al- he said he needed both alcohol and morphine to paint the forgery at the trial... And there is speculation that part of why he confessed when he did was because he was going through withdrawal. With all this in his system, von Megren's talents began to slip in his later years. And if you look at his paintings today, you wonder how anyone could ever have mistaken his paintings 
for a Vermeer or any other master because they're not very good. <laughs> That's the best part of this is that his forgeries kind of suck. <laughs> so you're saying I have a chance. His yeah. I may his, be an American master. Yeah, he was he was saved primarily I think because he didn't copy because they were, you know, hitherto undiscovered, but at the same time his facial proportions were off, his coloring is too dark, his mm. positioning is too awkward. Go off. Like there's all these th- I'll show you some pictures of it in a second so you can kind of look and compare. But it's hard to think anyone would actually believe works by von Megeren and Vermeer were by the same artist. Because... <laughs> Drag him, dude. You are just crushing him. In his defense, my my mom also tells me that my facial proportions are off. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, real, yeah, it's realistic. You know. Some people, you know... You know, when I, when I go back and look at my drawings on the refrigerator, I do notice a lack of adherence to anatomy no i'm talking about my literal face oh, okay <laughs> like on my skull all right well it seems all right to me jack <laughs> well thank you eric no for the problem. listeners at home it's not all right eric, <laughs> all right so do you want to look at some of these pictures yeah now? no i really do so this is so this is a vermeer sending that link to you oh wow there it goes it's called the lace maker so what I want you to look at, you see how delicate the coloring is, how nice the lighting is, how it really does feel like natural light inside a room. Yeah, that's actually kind of sick. Yeah, that's the lace maker by, by Vermeer. It feels very natural. Here is the lace maker presumed to be by uh, Yo- by uh, Han von Megeren. I'm going to put him right next so to So did each he other. straight up copy this one? No, I oh, think gonna it's... going to be different. It's 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 not a straight up copy, but you'll see what I mean. All right, we'll see. Let's see what we got. Oh yeah, they're like different paintings, very different. Yeah, they don't look all that similar. He's got this kind of yellow tinge to it. The light isn't as good. The kind of neck to face area looks kind of awkward. Yeah, it's actually pretty bad. It's really not that good. It's, it's kind of bad, painting. dude. <laughs> It's just not that good. When you say the neck to face thing, now I'm legitimately freaked her out by her face. Her head's kind of tiny. He he did a couple other. Let me let me show you some more by him. Yeah, her facial so, proportions. Oh, are I don't like this, dude. Are. You just ruined my night. <laughs> People aren't supposed to look like this, even in paintings. So here's um, Christ with the adulteress, the one that was in the Vermeer one. Alright, I got the... Uh... This is not the Vermeer one. The, the one that was with Goering. There you go. Okay. You'll notice that the faces just look kind of weird, especially in the, like, forehead nose area. Yeah, they look like... It's, like, dehumanizing. I don't know. It's just, like... It doesn't... They don't look like Vermeer's. Vermeer's the guy who painted Girl with a Pearl Earring. Right. That seems so natural. Yeah, like the, he's 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 a master of like getting of like getting natural stuff right. Also, what's interesting about Vermeer is that of his like 34, 35 works, almost none of them are religious. And so that's part of why critics were so excited about the fake ones like, "Ooh, Vermeer's religious work" when like really he didn't do many. He didn't do that. Yeah. He wasn't that interested in it. Here's the the supper at Emmaus, the one that um 
the one that made him millions from and the one that the the critic was describing you'll notice it's very similar to the last one damn that guy must feel like such a weenie yeah dude it's like it's not the same painting but it's kind of like similar damn yeah they're not very good they shouldn't trick anyone right like what i don't yeah von megren's paintings are not very good they just like they just aren't like they're perfectly fine but you like if you if you looked at them next to like vermeer's work you would never really think that they were by the same guy unless you had an established critic telling you that it was and that happened repeatedly over (laughs) and over around the country and the continent wake up sheeple wake up it's it's that's what makes this story a story of like incompetence on a grand scale it's not that like he fooled people with good forgeries it's that the forgeries weren't good (laughs) they were bad (laughs) they were not this was definitely like a do the night before get a b minus and hope for the best and i think part of why they kept they kept being confirmed as like real is because they they slipped past like the 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 scientific tests that they would do like when they oil paintings take a long time to dry so stuff from like 200 years prior would be would be hard and so they had a test to make sure that like the the paint had hardened but because he mixed bakelite which is a hardening resin into his paints it passed that test that bitch it was that kind of stuff that like that made him a good forgery. It was not actually his painting technique. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to say that he was good enough to get it by people, but like people are just dumb. If you yeah. look at them side by side and like that's probably why. Like people didn't have access to all the paintings. I mean, maybe yeah, they and you were have... as high off their asses as he was. Well, and also like the average layperson just didn't know as much about art back then. Yeah. Like you know no internet obviously but like also there just wasn't as much knowledge like culturally on this kind of stuff yeah not like me yeah i mean i don't know about him now i know so, all about like, art stuff. I certainly wouldn't have known about that. yeah but like you've heard of girl with a pearl earring which yeah, i probably yeah, should yeah. i when i when i when i said you've you haven't heard of her i probably should have talked about that i apologize yeah, like i know what oil paint is and i know what res is yeah, everybody smokes res sometimes <laughs> <laughs> so also Another thing about Han von Megeren, you know, the, you know, the guy who came clean at the trial, is that he didn't actually tell the authorities about all the forgeries he ever did and sold. And so, for decades after that trial, new von Megeren fakes kept getting confirmed. Like they would test it, they would test to make sure that it had bakelite or whatever in the paint, and they're like, "Yeah, this one's a fake too, man." So he was really ahead of his time, I guess. <laughs> There are some cases of works that he did becoming more valuable when they were revealed as fakes because he is now better known than the original artist is. He's like created his own fame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he got so famous that there that there began to be fakes of his fakes. And oh. one of one of the primary forgers of Han von Megeren is his own son, Jacques von Megeren. And someone faked that shit? Yeah, and Jacques was even worse than Han was. They were they were never good fakes. <laughs> so I, mean, I guess so, if it's drawn incorrectly the first time, it's really easy to 
Well, and so because it's really easy to fake a fake because all you have to do is take a mediocre, you know, genre painting in a Dutch style, slap the Han von Megeren signature on it, and then it's a new Han von Megeren. Let's do it tonight. Sounds like a good little niche business they had going. Yeah, so that's the story of Han von Megeren, arguably the the most scandalous art forger of the 20th century. Damn, and to think you, I was really on Han's side until... Yeah, that's the, the thing. I was also really on Han's side until I learned about you know all the racism. So yeah, that's that's the story. Do you guys do you guys want to get to the pickle? Oh, Jack doesn't uh, know what that is. You know I live for the pickle. Hit hit my boy with what the pickle is. All right, so I I because I, I do these big stories about grand incompetence, they tend to be like huge bummers. Um, I also do a short story about competence in an absurd way. Uh, and I call the, the, this segment is called a pickle, pickle for the knowing for the ones. ones. <laughs> Google it. It's great. I promise you this one. You did ask me for mummies and I did actually came through come through. I was lying oh, earlier. You sneaky mommy. He yeah. came and he lied to us about it. Yeah. To your face. So <laughs> Andrew, where are the oldest mummies? Where were they discovered? um mesopotamia no they were discovered in chile fuck me (laughs) yeah (laughs) in the atacama desert where conditions are perfect for mummifying there was in in uh several thousand years bce there was the chinchoro people chinchoro people chinchoro Uh, i can't roll my r's but uh, normally my spanish pronunciation is a lot better than that Pretty confused here, Eric. My mummy is from Illinois. <laughs> That's a bad joke. I shouldn't have laughed at it. Shouldn't we got you. We got thing. you good. Shouldn't have, I just I just shouldn't allow that thing, got, kind of thing it. on my podcast. So, actually, the the Chinchoro peoples have uh, the in in the Atacama Desert was discovered the oldest artificially mummified human remains ever. Um. And there are some of some of these mummies date all the way back to seven thousand BCE, which is a long time. That um, is a long time. That is long. And and it's an old mummy. This is and in the seven thousand to five thousand, it's not really clear how much of the mummification is like just the natural elements doing it on their own, and how much they were like conscious of it. Purposely doing it, yeah, yeah. But around 5,000, as uh, over the thousands of years, their techniques get more and more complicated. Well, yeah, to I mean, do it, it. Takes, it takes time to learn to be a mummy. <laughs> Ask Tom Cruise. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is the dark universe. <laughs> the, uh, basically, what they would do eventually is they would kind of... They, it wasn't the same kind of evisceration that, uh, it, that the Egyptians would do for their mummies. Um, but they would like remove the head, take the brain out, take some internal organs out, put a, put like plant matter, soil or animal hair back in where they used to be and then put their skin back on top. That's that. that oh, that last part. That was their mummification <laughs> process. Could have done without that guys. And then, and then either, uh, wrap them up in like reeds or something, or in later, in the later years, they would just kind of encase them in like mud, clay, cement, basically. So they're like very well preserved. Also because of this, 
they have the 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 um, oldest evidence of tattooing in any American mummy or any mm. American human remains. Tattoo. Would you ever get a tattoo, yeah. Eric? Sure. Haven't yet, though. I'm going to make one more bad joke, but I've been thinking about getting a tattoo of my mommy. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Please cut that. Please thanks cut thanks that. again. No, I'm leaving that in. Everyone should know. Uh, I don't want to be on this pod. Just cut out all of my parts and leave in Jack's really weird cut-ins. <laughs> just cut out every all the, the whole story and just leave That's Jack's funny. jokes without any context. <laughs> all right. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you for being on, Andrew and Jack. Thanks, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Jack, how was your first time? Ah. <laughs> I think he's just really nervous, guys. Learned learned a lot of stuff. Go easy on him. All of it good. I've been very nervous this entire time. I broke Andrew's bed. <laughs> uh, that, that just amplified the nervousness. Uh, well, I'm sorry you were nervous, I guess. It's okay, you know. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Part of right. my de- and, de- uh, de- demeanor. Jack, do you, do you have a Twitter account? I uh, I don't know what that is, Eric. All right, Andrew, what's yours? If people want to follow you on there, it's at a Fleischer six. Hit me up. Yeah. Skype me, ping me, zap me, bop it. You know. Yeah. I'm I'm at Eric McAdams UG on Twitter. You can find my work by googling me. There's a bunch of crappy clickbait listicles. Under my name that you can check out if you want. It's actually also found on lickmylisticles.net backslash yeah. Eric McAdams. Yeah, that's, that's where they are. That's the one. That's the URL. Uh, and you can also always check out more podcasts on the Major Cast Network because we got a bunch of good stuff on there. All right. Check it out, Say folks. goodbye, everybody. Hit me with the theme song. <laughs> Give me that outro. Thanks for listening to the Major Cast Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.